Hello, everybody. I'm so happy you came to church. Hey, I had this crazy experience yesterday. Um, I was out trying to replace broken sprinkler heads from our very, very long winter. And apparently either my t-shirt was too short or my pants were too low. Because I got a nice little burn. Like, right? If you're my neighbor, I apologize for what you had to see. Uh, but it, it, it was just so nice to get a little sunburn. Like, I am not complaining the first time the sun's been hot enough to hurt anything in a long, long time. I'm uh, happy that you came. Maybe this is your first time being at church in a, long, in a while, or this is regular, either one. Uh, thanks for making this a priority. There's a lot of things you could be doing. We're in this series we're calling Big Church, and we are not talking whatsoever about attendance or seating capacity. None of that makes a church big. It's about its sending capacity, and it's about how surrendered people are to this big, incredible God. So it's big people. It's about people who are just enraptured with the story of God and what Jesus has done. That's what we're looking at. Week one, we looked at Acts chapter two. Jesus has left the planet after his, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And as he's leaving, he looks at his followers. Now, he calls his followers in Greek, he uses the term ekklesia. Ecclesia, which is what we translate church, but it has nothing to do with a building. It, nothing to do with the building. It's a group of people who are called to follow, a gathering of followers. And he looks at his ecclesia, his church, and he says, now get ready because you're going to continue to do what I came to start on this planet. You're going to proclaim a message and you're going to bring about renewal in lives, healings, restoration. And he says, and here's the missing component. It's like Genesis chapter 1 and 2 all over. It's a new beginning. He says, I'm going to breathe into human beings the Holy Spirit. And when my spirit comes, it cre creates life and a dynamic. So you're not just a whole bunch of people trying to do nice things. You will be propelled by the very spirit of God. So there's a force in this ecclesia, in this church, that has nothing to do with our effort. It's God breathing into his followers strength, wisdom, courage to be what he wants us to be. Last week, we looked at chapter 4, where resistance happens. It, it, it's very common with the church. If you looked at the 2,000 years history of the church, it's not like a bed of roses and you know butterflies and unicorns. There's been difficulty and pain. In Acts chapter 4, the leaders are put in prison. And when they get out, they come back to the ecclesia, to the church, and they say, we need to pray. And here's what they pray. They're big prayers. Pray, first of all, God, would you make us bold? Would you help us not to shrink back and be afraid, not to be intimidated by difficulties in our life, but would you make us bold to speak your words with more and more emphasis, more and more truth, more and more conviction? And they say this, this is their second prayer. Would you stretch out your hand, God? And would you do miracles, which they call signs and wonders? That means they're asking that God would do not miracles in their lives, don't just heal us. God, we pray that you would do miracles in people's lives who are far from you. Because if you did something unexplainable in their lives, they would reconsider who they thought you were. They, they, they would change. So they pray for signs and wonders. Now, we're going to skip all the way to Acts chapter 15 this week. And we're going to read about the first big theological controversy in the church. 
we're going to call it a big drift. Because there's something where the church, the church, this is written about 56 AD, when the, the text we're going to read, about 56. So the church has been around for a few decades, and the book of Acts chronicles the first several decades of the church. And the church is beginning to drift towards more structured religious practice towards law rather than grace. And this is a tension that we face in 2018. This is a tension that the church has faced from its inception is there will always be this drift where we will forget this thing called radical grace. Radical grace. And we'll try to take more into our hands and more into our control. Now, let me set up why this happens, okay? This is why this happens. The church is found in Jerusalem to begin with. Jesus was a Jewish man. The disciples, the first apostles were all Jewish. And so it kind of begins in this place called Jerusalem, but it spreads out. I'm going to show you a map. This is a map of Paul's missionary journeys. So Paul, he's a good Pharisee. He's, he's a good young Jewish boy, as you can imagine. Okay, He's highly trained. And when he sees this thing happening in Jerusalem, okay, in the first month, there's 5,000 believers. Okay, this thing's growing like wildfire. So he's a good Jew, and he says, you know what? I feel like our Jewish culture and our Judaism as a religion are under attack, and someone needs to do something about this. People are wandering away from our ancient traditions, and they're following the teachings of this new Jesus people, and it is exponentially growing. So he heads up the attack against the church. And so here in Jerusalem... One after another, he systematically attempts to arrest and even kill the leaders of this ecclesia, the followers of Jesus. He is there in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is the first martyr. He's killed for following Jesus. Now, guess what happens to Saul? <laughs> Acts chapter 9, he's going to a city called Damascus to find more believers in Jesus. And he meets Jesus face to face. He's knocked backwards. Everything about his life changes. Rather than trying to destroy this ecclesia, this church, the followers of Jesus, he joins. He spends 14 years in obscurity and in silence. And then after 14 years, he starts to travel. These red lines show his first missionary journey. The green lines show his second. Look at that. Now, when we look at these lines, we think, oh, that would be called a nice Mediterranean cruise right? But in the first century, this was a lot of walking and a lot of rides on little wooden boats. Okay. And then his last missionary journey is in uh, blue. And then finally he's going to go all the way to Rome where he's killed in 67 AD by the emperor Nero. Okay. So imagine the miles that this man put on. And here's where the controversy arises from. Okay. Here's Jerusalem, right? The church was there. It was a Jewish thing. Jesus was Jewish. Well, as soon as Paul leaves, there are Jewish people sprinkled throughout the Roman Empire, but very few. And so when he comes to places like Tarsus and Derby and Antioch and Asos, when he comes to Corinth, who's he speaking this message of radical grace to? Non-Jewish people. And so all of a sudden, not only are there 5,000 people in the first month in Jerusalem, now we're talking 100, 150,000 people. Churches spread through all these cities where Paul goes, and they're not Jewish. They don't know anything about Judaism. All they know is Paul told them about Jesus, and, and, and their lives have been transformed. 
This is where the tension comes from. Because the leadership is still found here in Jerusalem. And they're really uncomfortable with some of what's happening around here. Let's read together Acts chapter 15. We'll read it in three different sections as we talk through it. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, notice this, you cannot be saved. So here's where the tension begins. Now, circumcision, um, just think this way. Genesis chapter 17, verse 9, it was a covenant that God made with, Jew, with the, the Jewish people. He said, I'm going to work through you. You will, as a sign of this covenant, your males will be circumcised. Nobody else in the world was circumcised. Okay? In the first century, it was just unheard of. And so what these leaders say is, listen, circumcision is a necessity for salvation. Now, everybody who lived outside of Jerusalem, especially if they were dudes, were like, seriously? Paul never told us that. I'm not sure I would have jumped on this bandwagon. If I, like, are you kidding me? I can't be saved? Let's read on. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Okay, sharp dispute and debate. This is a little bit Jerry Springer. This is Judge Judy. This is like, these guys can't get along, okay? So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and, and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled along through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, this is the same group that opposed Jesus that he was always having tension with, Okay, these Pharisees are now followers of Jesus, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and, and, so the list has gotten even bigger, and required to keep the law of Moses. Okay, first section, Acts 15. Here's what we're going to call this, the problem. Here's the problem. Paul has been traveling around and he has been finding people who have been worshiping the Greek and Roman gods for centuries. And he's been telling them, listen, there is a true God who came to this planet and he is not angry with you. In fact, he so loves you that he died in your place. He's resurrected. He is living. He wants to live his life through you. There is now hope for you. There is now forgiveness. You don't have to deal with shame. He wants to actually indwell you, change, transform, and work through you. And they're, they're thrilled. They're thrilled. But there's this tension. It's reasonable. Jesus was Jewish. And Jews were very distinct from other people. No matter where they lived in the Roman Empire, they dressed differently. They had different hairdos. They wore a yarmulke. They had long tassels, many of them, coming from their sideburns. They were a distinct people group. And so they assumed this. It's reasonable. If Jesus was Jewish, and you say that you want to be part of his church, one of his followers, you need to become Jewish, which means circumcision and the law of Moses. 
Now, the law of Moses you can find in the first two-thirds of the Bible. 636 commands. Lots and lots of instructions on how to live your life. And so this is the problem. The Jews are going, wait a minute, Paul. We love what you're doing. That's great. But remind them. Remind them about the law. Remind them about circumcision. So here's the question. It's a question that's 2,000 years old. How good does a person have to be in order to be part of the church? How good is good enough? So season right now, I'm watching a couple of my boys in track. Okay, And we just had our first middle school track meet of the year. And it's kind of fun. You know, like all these kids are trying new things. But I kind of got a chuckle watching the high jump. Okay, I've been to a lot of high school track meets, and they put that bar, like, by the end, they're jumping really high. Middle school, guess where you start with the bar? Pretty low. The mat's here, the bar's over the top, right? You know, middle schoolers come in all shapes and sizes. You've got men and you've got boys, right? You've got girls and you've got women. And so I'm watching, and some of these kids are jumping, you know, this high over a bar that's this high. And some... They're brushing up against the bar this high, right? So where do you start the bar? Where do you put the bar? Where, where do you find quali- somebody qualifies? This is an ancient, ancient question. We have to decide. So wh- where's the bar? How good does someone have to be in order to be a follower of Jesus? Is it, is it here or is it here? Do you have to get cleaned up? Do you, do you have to, like, shiny your life up? Do you have to change yourself morally? When does he accept you? And then when does the church accept you? Yeah. Do, do you have to, like, find a way to remove that tattoo you really, really regret? Like, where, where's the bar? Where's the bar? Do you quit sinning? Or do people who are really, really broken and filled with doubts? How low do you put the bar? That's that's what they had to deal with. It's a question that we still need to ask ourselves. I bet if you're in the room and you had a bad experience with church, you felt shame and you felt like you didn't measure up, you felt as if you, you just didn't qualify to be a part of the followers of Jesus, it had to do with this very thing. That there was a place where somebody made you feel like the bar was this high. And no matter how high you jumped, you, you couldn't make it over. And you felt, I'm too far gone. I, I made too many mistakes. It's a tension that we have to face. It's a tension that we have to ask ourselves. And here's the other thing. For those of you in the room who have been around for a while, I'm speaking to myself. You start following Jesus for three, four, five years, a couple of decades. You forget what life was like before you knew him. And you start raising the bar. I'm glad the bar was this high when it was my turn. Right? But actually, I think we should put the bar up here. People need to be better. People need to shiny up their lives. They need to quit making mistakes. We can fill in the blank with many other things because there was a statement that the Pharisees, says, uh, uh, Pharisees say, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Hey, think about it. 
Think about what the church teaches. This tension is so real. We fill in this blank. Unless you are baptized in a certain manner, you cannot be saved. Unless you quit doing this, you cannot be saved. Unless you begin doing this, you cannot be saved. Unless you believe specific things about the book of Revelation, you cannot be saved. We'll add all kinds of things into this blank. And the early church has to decide, what do we put in the blank? What is it that allows someone to be saved? How many words, how many phrases, how many points of doctrine, how many specific behaviors need to put in that, need to be put in that blank in order for someone to be saved? That's the tension. So in their world, they're asking this question. How Jewish do non-Jewish people need to become? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to keep the laws of Moses? In our world, here's the question. How Christian do non-Christian people need to become? How how, how Christian do non-Christian people need to become before they could feel welcomed by God and by the church? And ladies and gentlemen, I mean, you can think about it. I'm not pointing out any churches. I'm just saying this is a tension where we're not sure what to do with this at times. I love that this text is going to walk us through something that's radical and something that actually makes me uncomfortable in ways. All right? So there's the problem. Let's jump into the debate. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas now are headed for Jerusalem to talk about this. Acts chapter 15, we'll start at verse 6. We'll pick up right where we left off. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. How Jewish do non-Jewish people need to become? After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Now, Peter, this is the same Peter who denied Jesus. He was Jesus' right-hand man at many times. This is what he says. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Let's pause there for one moment. What Peter is referring to can be found in Acts chapter 10. Peter is a really good Jewish boy, okay? Part of being a good Jewish boy is you had strict dietary um, limitations. Okay, tell me, like, how many people would get excited about this? No pork, no bacon, no shrimp, no lobster, no crab, no rabbits. That one I don't care about too much. Um, So... All these Jewish limitations, there are certain things that you could not eat. Peter, for his whole life, he's never tasted bacon. He never plans on tasting bacon. He's he's praying. He has a vision. A sheet comes down from heaven. The sheet unfolds. And inside of the sheet, guess what? Bacon. (laughs) And crab and lobster. And God says to him, arise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter's like, no. This must be the devil. Because all my life, I've avoided all those things. Those are, those are dirty. Those are unclean food. The Old Testament is very clear. No, God, surely not, Lord, he says. He hears God say again, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And then there's a knock on his door. There's a guy there. He says, hey, listen, I'm Greek, and the guy I work for is Greek, and he wants you to come over to his house. His name's Cornelius. Acts chapter 10. 
Peter says, oh, no, no. Good Jewish boys never go into the home of non-Jews. It would pollute me. It would make me dirty. Oh, it's the sheep. God, you're asking me to stretch myself. You're asking me to go into the home of a man named Cornelius, and the law actually prohibits me from doing that. You're asking me to reach beyond the people I'm comfortable with. You're asking me to hang out with people that don't look like me and don't talk like me. So he goes into Cornelius' house. He starts telling Cornelius the story of Jesus. What happens? Cornelius receives the Holy Spirit just as he did. He's like, whoa! I can't believe this. You're not Jewish. You're not circumcised. I think God loves you. Crazy! You have something supernatural happening in you. So that's what he's referring to. He says, he he did it through my lips. But he stretched me beyond what I was comfortable with. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He did not discriminate. God does not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts. This is important. How does someone purify their hearts? Through moral effort. Through good behavior. God purified their hearts through Faith, through faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on, their ne- on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? This whole thing of the law, this whole thing of circumcision. It, it's, it's an animal who's pulling something. We haven't been able to do that. Let's not put it on the non-Jewish believers. No, he says. We believe it is Through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. How are you saved? Putting the bar high and you finally clearing it? It's through the grace of our Lord Jesus. Salvation by grace. The whole assembly became silent as they listened. Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. God has been restoring people's lives who are uncircumcised, who are not Jewish. God is in their midst. He, he, he obviously accepts them. There's the debate. See, in the church, Grace, this thing we believe, radical grace and truth, which is so essential. Grace and truth often collide. They often collide. And we find it difficult. We don't know what to do because the religious people, the more religious you are, the more you're going to emphasize truth, right? It was the Pharisees. They're like, wait a minute. We've been working so hard to live our lives right for God. We've memorized the first five books of the Bible. We are so conscientious of our behavior. And you're telling me that God is doing things in people's lives and they don't know jack squat about God. They they don't know the scriptures. How is this happening? Grace and truth often collide. But, But here's the beauty of Jesus. The church should be a place where grace and truth coexist. The truth is never compromised. And grace is always freely given. See, the author of this church, the, 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 the man who talked about the ecclesia, 
Jesus, in John, we read this, that Jesus came from the Father, filled with grace and filled with truth. Not equally balanced, but full of truth and full of grace. And this is what created so much tension in the relationships around Jesus, is he offered truth to people who didn't want to hear it. Difficult things. And he offered grace to people who everyone else thought they don't deserve it. He had enemies on both sides. He'd hang out with people that were considered undesirables and he'd tell them they could be loved. He'd hang out with people that thought they knew it all and he'd say, you are missing the truth. Grace and truth are meant to come together in his ecclesia. That's what it means to be a big church. It's a church where truth is never compromised. And grace is freely distributed. So here's the drift that happens. I just want to walk through these really quickly. The church will drift toward what is familiar, what is comfortable, and what is manageable. 2,000 years, that's been our drift. The, the drift will be towards law and away from grace. Towards human performance and away from this radical free salvation that God gives us. The drift will be more towards policies rather than conversations. <laughs> I tell our staff around here, we call this, I don't even say it, it's called the P word. It's a P word. Here's the tendency. Let's just write policies, but policies eliminate conversations. And conversations is where there can be both grace and truth given. A policy is a written rule that typically focuses on law, on behavior. And this is the way the church will always drift. The drift is toward preserving rather than advancing. Let's keep what we know. Because new people, different people, is scary. It's going to get a little bit messy. We don't know how low to set the bar. I love this, that Peter stands for grace. He's at risk. I mean, this is the whole church leadership. And he stands up, and there's people that are more educated than he is, the Pharisees. And he just stands up for grace. Ladies and gentlemen, I think there is room for us to stand up for grace. Because grace is so easily forgotten. I'm not talking about compromising truth. But I'm saying, stand up for grace in your workplace. Hey, I believe in second chances. Stand up for grace in your marriages and in your family and with your kids. Stand up for grace in your, your communities of believers because we'll tend to move towards judgment. We'll tend to move towards eliminating people. Stand for grace. And what does grace do? It silences the room. It silences the room. And Peter says, we can't expect these new believers to live under this yoke that we couldn't. Let's lower the bar. It's not about their human performance. It's about God's ability. This whole phrase can be captured in this, this Latin term that Martin Luther and the Anabaptists really focused on, sola fide. Sola fide, which is faith alone. Faith alone. The bar isn't about your works. It's not about, boy, you're this good and this, this is good enough. This, nope, nope, actually, it's moved to six foot six. Oh, he says, salvation comes 
through faith alone. Faith alone. Our emphasis must be on the work of Jesus and not on human behavior. So that leads us to this final part. It's the resolution. So what are they going to do? Okay, there's a debate. They say, hey, we're going we're gonna to move back towards grace. We're going to believe that God does things that we're not always comfortable with. We're going to believe that people that don't look like us and don't talk like us, that God still loves them. So here's the first church policy, right? Here's the resolution. Let's pick up in uh, verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We're going to come back to this. This verse right here governs a large part of what we do at this church. Okay? Move on. Instead, we should write to them. Here's the first church statement of doctrine ever written. Telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. The law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. There's this little Jewish outpost everywhere. Um, the Old Testament has been read in those places. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Whew, all the guys said, like, are you serious? What is in this letter? Let's look at the contents. There's two commands and two concessions. Two commands and two concessions. Here's the two commands. First, just a second, hang on. Think about if, if you were writing official church doctrine on, hey, we're going to lower the bar, and here's the two absolutely essential things. This is what they come up with. Notice this. It's not the Ten Commandments. Notice what's not here. Abstain from idolatry. Abstain from sexual immorality. Those are our two commands. Well, what about lying? What, what about drinking? What about cussing? There are a whole lot of things that don't make the list that I think are fairly important. This is a really, really small list. What would this have meant to them? Idolatry. Okay, so all, all the, all the non-Jewish people, they had been worshiping the Greek and Roman gods. Centuries. So the Romans renamed the Greek gods. So you have Zeus and Jupiter. You have Artemis and Diana. And so part of their everyday life was you had these little statues that you put throughout your house. If you were a farmer, you put little statues of Artemis out in your field in the four corners. Because she was a goddess of fertility and she would bless your crops. You put the gods of protection in your kid's room so that these gods would protect your kids from illness or sickness or whatever it might be. 
You put a, a little statue of Zeus or Jupiter, whichever name you wanted to use for him, in your home, and you prayed for your dead relatives in front of Zeus, in front of Jupiter, and you spent a great deal of time trying to appease these angry gods. And here's what the early church says. Listen. The one of the two things that we're going to put in front of you is this. It's about the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So listen. If you're really worshiping Jesus, if you want to be a part of his big church that's going to change the world, it doesn't make any sense to have these little gods anymore. You're fully surrendered to him. Now, most of us in the room, you're like, hey, I'm sitting good here. I don't have any little figurines in my house. Idolatry is, is varied, right? There are other things that I put before God that can always be an idol. And here's the second thing. Abstain from sexual immorality. Now, I, I know that our world, a lot of us were deeply concerned because it's such a sensual culture. Listen, do a little bit of study in the first century. Um, sensuality, sexuality was just radically different. It was just out of control. It was like Corinth would have made Vegas look like, you know, Des Moines, Iowa, okay? Um, Corinth, here's an example. Uh, recent archaeological survey, they're digging up one of the temples. There's 12 temples in ancient Corinth. They're digging up one of them. There is a census. There were 1,000 people who were employed as prostitutes in this one temple. Sexuality, sensuality, and worship went together. In the Greek and Roman world, they did not think of sex as something sacred whatsoever. It was part of how you worshiped your gods. It was a part of, there just weren't any natural barriers. Just all types of strange and disturbing sexuality. And here's what the early church says. We're going to ask you, if you want to follow Jesus, let's consider sexuality is something that's very sacred. Let's take what's very clear through the Old Testament. And this word immorality means any sex outside of the covenant of a marriage between a man and a woman. They would have been like, whoa, are you, wow, I didn't know I joined such a hyper-conservative group here. This would have been a huge deal for most of them. But they say, if there's two things, like one, we, we just don't worship idols. And two, we're going to say that sexuality is sacred. It was made by God. It's beautiful. He's not telling you to stop. He's just saying there's a context for it. And outside of that context, it's damaging, it's painful. It's not the best for a human being. The same with this idolatry thing. And then there's two concessions. These ones are going to make you feel great. Okay, remember all the list. Avoid meat that has been strangled. Avoid the drinking of blood. Anybody in the room... Strangled an animal recently and eaten it? Or had a cup of blood? Anybody? Like it's a safe place. Safe place. What in the world are these two things doing on the list? Like sexual immorality and idolatry. Here's, this is the concession. This is why it's a concession. Remember, there's Jews all over in these places. And they're going to come together. And, and here's, here's how this all worked out. Um, most farmers, you could get paid twice. Uh, or a rancher, you get paid twice for your animals. If you led the animal to one of the many temples, and at the temple they no longer killed the animal by, by um, any means except for strangulation to make it less messy for the priests. 
And so they would sacrifice your animals to Zeus, to Artemis, whoever it might be, and they would pay you to allow them to kill these animals as a sacrifice to the gods. And then you could take that animal and you could bring it down to the market and you could sell it. So you got paid by the temple and then you also got paid at the market. You got paid twice. And so this meat is everywhere throughout the Roman Empire. Some people estimate that up to 85% of all meat went through this process of being sacrificed for a god and then being sold in the marketplace. And it was cheaper than meat that wasn't um, uh, just, just outright butchered. So the Jewish people who are sitting down with the Greek people, they're like, I'm sorry, I can't eat this meat. This, this meat was offered in sacrifice to, to Zeus. Like, I feel like I'm participating in idolatry. And then they'll avoid the, the drinking of blood. Ancient traditions of people drank blood trying to take on the strength and power of the animal that they had killed. And by the way, I think it's fairly unhealthy for you and gross. That's why you don't do it. Okay. So these are the two concessions for the Jews. For the Jews. Stop with the defining statement. Acts 15, 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We probably would eliminate this word Gentiles. There's probably some people who are Jewish in the room, but that's not the debate here. What if we said we should not make it difficult for those who are far from God, who want to turn to God? I get asked often, why, why, do, you, why do we do church the way we do church? It's not my personal preference. Like, I want to tell you that. Like, if, if we did church the way I want to do church, it would be different than what we do here. We do church the way we do church because we want to make it as easy as possible for people who are far from God to turn to God. We... People, I get nasty letters about, you guys are a seeker-sensitive church. And I'm like, that's not our goal. Here's what we are. We're a comprehensible church. We are trying to be a comprehensible church so that people who are far from God can turn to God. That does not mean that we ever compromise truth. Never will we compromise truth. But we will do things in a way that people go, huh, I get that. We're committed to using language that isn't confusing to people. You, maybe, you're, maybe you're totally spiritually unresolved right now. You have no idea what you believe. You may think I'm crazy, but you understand me. And that's my goal. Yes, I have surrendered my life to an invisible God that I cannot see or touch. I serve him. That sounds nuts. I know. But you understand what I'm talking about. And so what are we going to do? We're going to say, okay. Here's where we put the bar. Faith in Jesus Christ. Sola fide. We are saved through grace. Everybody makes it over this bar. We're not going to make it difficult. So we're going we're to try to live lives that are genuine. Because if I live a life that's inconsistent, I just raise the bar. I made somebody stumble. If people are going to stumble, they're going to stumble over the declarations of Jesus. Not over our attitudes or our verbiage or the way that we operate. I am consisting, consistently asking myself this question. If my friends who are far from God came to this church, is there anything that we are doing that would make it difficult for them to turn to God? 
I get it. The good news of Jesus is difficult. It is a leap of faith. It is a surrender to him. But let's make sure there's nothing else besides the message of Jesus that makes people turn from him. There's just three statements, three commitments. Number one, let's be more concerned with who we are reaching rather than who we are keeping. And I know this is a bit inflammatory, and I don't mean it that way, but here's what happens in churches. If you are not careful, you keep your focus on who's staying, on the needs of the people involved. And it's like, we'll do whatever it takes to keep you here. If you're trying to make everybody happy, you're not reaching new people. And so there's going to be times when it's like, oh, God, I, I don't know if I can be here. I get it. I get it. We always have to be concerned with who we're reaching rather than who we're keeping. Number two, let's always err on the side of grace. We're not compromising truth, but grace needs special emphasis in a world that is filled with law. Err on the side of grace. Stand up. Say, no, wait a minute. We are saved through faith alone. I need to consistently remind myself of that because I'm a religious person that tends to rely on human behavior. Let's not make it difficult for people to turn to God. It's a big part of what we're doing around here. Will you pray with me? Lord, thanks for this ancient text and and the fact that Acts isn't all sanitized. It isn't all cleaned up. You, You recorded this moment where the church was drifting, this big drift towards more structure, more requirements, more behavior in order to be accepted by God. And this moment where it steps back and it says, no, no, no. We believe we're saved by grace through our faith in Jesus. Lord, would you teach us to be people individually, corporately as a church, as an ecclesia, who always create atmospheres and environments where people can turn to you. Lord, help us to remember that you love the people outside of these walls as much as you love us. Keep us from religious structures that complicate things and help us to focus on the essence of what Jesus came to do and say. I want to pray in one other way for anybody in the room. Maybe you felt like the bar was higher than you could ever achieve. And you felt a sense of guilt and shame and insecurity before God. And maybe sometimes the church has made you feel that. If you're hearing right now, wait a minute, the bar's down here. It's not about what I've done or who I am. It is about what Jesus did and who he was. And if this is the morning, this is the day where you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus, I am telling you, yes, there's truth, but yes, there is grace. He will take you as you are. Your behavior does not inhibit his love for you. If you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus, we do this, we just boldly raise your hand and catch my eye, wave at me. Say, Nate, that's me. I need Jesus. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Your sons of God. Yes, sir. Right there as well. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Both of you ladies, I see your hands in there as well. Yeah. Yeah, right in the back, I see you. Beautiful. Yes, sir. You're his. You're his. You're forgiven. You're made new. 
On my left, your right, if that's you, wave at me, would you please? Yeah. Okay, there and there. You're his. Forgiven. If you're in the balcony, will you wave at me? Okay, right there. Absolutely. Okay, both of you. You're, yes, in the very top right there on my left. I see you. Anybody right here? Yeah. Okay, both of you there. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. All, all three of you right there. You're his. You're loved. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're in not because of what you've done, but because he loves you. Yeah, right there as well. Amen. Hey, everybody, would you, would you applaud for those <laughs> who just raised their hands? Thanks. <clears throat> for everybody who raised their hands, uh, God loves you more than you can ever know. And that, that, that's true for everybody in the room. If you raise your hand, head to one of these I Have Decided banners. They're in the balcony here on the floor. I want to get something in your hand to begin this journey. Everybody else, there's prayer up front. If you need somebody you can trust, they'll pray for you. Be the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus. You are loved. God bless you. See you next week.